morning. Um, so as Chris said, the reading is from Isaiah and we're reading chapter 65 from verse 8. So if you want to, you can follow along on the screen or if you want to uh, look in the Bibles, it is on page 1165. This is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and people say, don't destroy it, there is still a blessing in it, so will I do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them and there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Achor a resting place for herds. For my people who seek me. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will fall in the slaughter. For I called you, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. You will, you will leave your name for my chosen ones to use in their curses. The Sovereign Lord will put you to death, but to his servants he will give another name. Whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so will do so by the one true God. Whoever takes an oath in the land will swear by the one true God, for the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there, will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain nor will they, be, will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm or dis nor, nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Many of you will know that prayer well. Many of you, for some of you, it might conjure up kind of incessant mutterings at school chapel or something like that. But if you do have a history of kind of saying like that, just strip that away for a minute because it's a powerful prayer, isn't it? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. See, it's a prayer that asks God to bring us home into his kingdom. It's a prayer that asks God to bring about the new heavens and the new earth. It's a prayer that asks God to bring about the end of this world. And with that, it's a prayer that asks God to bring about judgment. I hope today that you leave praying a prayer asking for God's kingdom to come. I hope today you'll leave certain of the great things that God has in store for us. Because that's the way the book of Isaiah finishes. It finishes off with the great hope that we have, certain of where we're going, that we have a great home that God has called us to. Well, good morning, everyone. My name's Carl. I introduced myself before. I'm the pastor here at Trinity Church Unley. I hope this morning you uh, managed to pick up a leaflet on your way in. There's a bit of an outline as to where we're going in that leaflet. And if you have any questions that come out of today as well, please, you can text them in. My phone number is on the screen behind a little later on. I'll do my best to try and answer those questions. They might be questions from today, or they might be questions from anything that we've covered in Isaiah so far over the last six weeks. Well, you know me a little bit already. I've introduced myself. Many of you will know Meredith as well. She sent the kids out to the kids program earlier. Meredith is my wife. In November this year, we've been married for 16 years. Now, that means a few things, doesn't it? Firstly, it means we're getting older. Secondly, it means we were married when we were pretty young. And thirdly, it means that we're getting to that point in life where we have just about shared as much of our life together as we've been apart. We're getting to know each other pretty well because of that. Um, I want to show you a photo. Simon's got it on the screen here of when we were married. It might help you to see that this was quite a long time ago. This was in the pre-digital era. So this is a scanned-in photo of us. Now, we know each other a lot better today than we did back when we took this photo, obviously. So think back, one of the things I can remember about life back at this time, and even before we were married, is that Meredith often got homesick. Now, Meredith's not from Adelaide, and please don't hold this against her, but Meredith is actually Victorian. Even today, she calls a rock melon a cantaloupe. And back in the time when we took this photo, before that, she used to say castle instead of castle and graph instead of graph. Back when I met Meredith, one of the things that I remember about her was this homesickness, that she missed her home, that she missed her family and her friends, and she missed kind of 
being part of what happened in her home. I wonder if you know what that feels like, if you've ever been homesick, if you've ever been away from the place that you call home. That's what I want us to be thinking of this idea. I get this illustration actually from William Taylor, who's a preacher in London, and I think it's particularly insightful because it suggests this idea of homesick, or William Taylor suggests that Isaiah 65 is designed to make us homesick. Now, not homesick for a place that we've been before, but rather homesick for the place that we're going to. Homesick for a place where we will fit perfectly. A place where everything is made right. Where everything is just as it should be. And Isaiah calls this place the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah tells us a number of things about what this place will be like, what our final resting place will be made up of. And here in Isaiah, we read of God recreating the heavens and the earth, and he does it in a magnificent way. I think these verses should bring with them a a wonderful sense of anticipation for us, a wonderful sense of excitement about what lies in store for us. But at the same time, as we read these sort of verses, there is a sense of sadness that comes with them. Because as we read of the great things that lie ahead for us, I think some of the failures of this world kind of bubble up and come to the surface. Now, some of us might feel this more acutely than others, but I I think we all have, at one level, a sense that this world is a flawed place. I wonder how you see that flaws. Perhaps you, you see it in injustice. I looked this up in the week. Half of our world live on less than $2.50 a day. And yet in Adelaide, we pay normally twice that for one cup of coffee. This part of the world is so wealthy, isn't it, in comparison to so much of the rest of the world. Maybe you see the flaws in our world today, not so much in in this kind of idea of poverty, but maybe you see it in relationships. Perhaps you've been hurt or forgotten, mistreated, harmed, even abused as part of a relationship. Maybe you see the flaws in this world to do with sickness or pain. It could be physical sickness or mental pain. Maybe it's loneliness and isolation, a lack of companionship. See, most of us are likely to have at some point in our lives come face to face with the brokenness of this world. And it feels wrong, doesn't it? I hope then that most of you look forward to and long for a time where it will be put right. Verse 17 of Isaiah chapter chapter 65, God says this. He says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. See, God says, I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things, I think he's referring here back to the past troubles that we see there in verse 16. That is the failures and the brokenness of this world. 
the sinfulness of the people who live in this world, well, those things, they won't be there in the new world. Indeed, they won't even be remembered in the new world. As we've worked our way through the, through the book of Isaiah, you couldn't have failed to see how important this would be for Jerusalem, the good news of what's to come. Here we see God going about creating a new city, a new Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem had fallen, it had been destroyed. And this new city, it will be a delight and its people will be a joy both to God and to each other's. It won't be a letdown. The people in that city will really be God's people and there will be much joy and delight. There will be no weeping and no crying. You see that there in verse 19? I'm looking forward to that day. It's because there's a lot to be upset about in this world, isn't there? There are so many valid reasons for weeping and crying. That's as true of life here in Unley as it is for anywhere else in the world. Now, just to reflect on what's made you upset in the past week or the past month. In the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no weeping and no crying. That's not because God's putting some sort of anesthesia in the waterworks of the new heavens or the new earth or anything like that. No, there will just be nothing to weep over and nothing to cry over. You see why we might be encouraged to be homesick for a place like this? It's going to be wonderful. In verse 20, the accolades of God's new creation, they continue to roll in as God tells us what this place will be like kind of almost seems a bit like a tourism advert, doesn't it? On the Tourism New Zealand website, you can read this. It says, wake up in paradise. Our stunning landscapes and friendly locals are closer than you think. Wake up in a place where something new awaits you every day. Do you want to go to New Zealand? Well, certainly it's got lovely landscapes, doesn't it? It's a great place to ski or to hike or to go bungee jumping. But here's the thing, particularly in my case, if you ski beyond your ability, you end up with a broken leg. If you bungee jump and the cord becomes undone because the operator was a bit under the weather on that day, then you're likely to plunge to your death. And when you're hiking, there are leeches, it's cold, and if you eat that sandwich that you packed three days ago, you're likely to be running to a bush every few minutes. Here's the tourism campaign for the new heavens and the new earth. Have a look at it as it starts in verse 20. Never again will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years, or one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. So in this new place, death and dying will even be different. So New Zealand's got its fancy landscape, sure, But this place, the new heavens and the new earth, is even better. An infant there never lives out but a few days. That's the place I want to be going. Indeed, I want to suggest to you that these verses are really speaking of a future age where death has no place at all. It doesn't quite say that in this passage. I think that's a little bit to do with the the nature of poetry. But to help you understand this idea that the new heavens and the new earth, there is no death, come with me back to Isaiah chapter 25. It's on page 1097. Chapter 25 is another 
one of the parts in the book of Isaiah that speaks of what this new heavens and new earth is like. And I just want you to have a look with me at verse 7. Verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 25 says this, it says, On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. So here in chapter 25, we're seeing another picture of the same reality that's being spoken about in chapter 65. See the common idea here of your tears being wiped away. But here can you see the way in which death is completely removed? The shroud that covers all nations, Isaiah says. He will swallow up death forever. And if you think about it, death really is the ultimate reminder for us that our current world is a broken world. Sometimes we tend to think of death in old age as kind of being just a natural part of life. But death is not the way that God intended the world to be. Death reminds us that the world is broken. And we feel that particularly, don't we, when someone younger dies... In 2017, Philip Jensen, many of you will know, he wrote about the death of his grandson. He died at 16 years of age from heart cancer. And this is what Philip says in an article he wrote. He says, nothing prepares us for the death of our child. Nothing prepares us to attend the funeral of a grandchild. That is not the natural order of things. That's not statistically normal in our modern society. That's not part of our plans or hopes, our aspirations or our dreams. He was supposed to attend my funeral, not me attend his. He was supposed to carry my coffin, not me carry his. See, surely there is nothing in this world that reminds us that our world is broken like the death of a child. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And the great news of Isaiah is that this is not what the new creations will be like. Death has been swallowed up forever there. That's the tourism campaign for the new heavens and the new earth. There is no pain. And not only that, but the former times of pain are remembered no more. C.S. Lewis has a really wonderful phrase about this. He's reflecting on the, the pain of this world. He says, I think I've got the quote on the screen behind me. Some people say that no future bliss can make up for the pain in this world, not knowing that heaven once obtained will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. See, the new creation, it's, it's such a wonderful place of joy and delight that it works backwards, making even the pain of today a glory in the future. I suspect that as Isaiah kind of was given images and pictures of what the new heavens and the new earth were like, he, he probably struggled to work out how to put it into words. And one of the images that he uses to present what the new creation might be like is this idea of a banquet, Joy and community and fellowship and the eating of good food. 
If you've still got your Bibles open there to chapter 25, look what it says in verse 6. It says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. You know, it's this sort of image that I think reminds me of why Meredith was homesick in our early years together. See, her family do fabulous meals together. They live an hour out of Melbourne in a place that's always cold, and so that means there's always a fire burning. And Meredith's mum cooks inside on a wood-fueled stove. They have a long dining table, and they fill it often with slow-roasted meats and vegetables that they've grown in their own garden. The dining room's always kind of that cosy feeling because of the fire burning in the corner, and yet it's big enough that people wandering in can join them and have a meal with them. Emeritus Dad has a fantastic cellar filled with aged red wine. That might be why she got homesick. <laughs> now, some of you who know me well know that I kind of get a kick out of using props as I speak, um, as I try and illustrate the point of the passage that we're looking at with props. Well, today I don't have anything to bring in to you as part of our sermon, but today I'd really love to encourage you to stay and join us as we eat a banquet lunch outside on the lawn. And we've got plenty of food today. There are meats roasting in the weather. There's potatoes in the oven cooking. There are salads from one end of the kitchen to the other. If you're visiting us today, we'd love you to stay. If you've already taken some lunch out of the freezer and you want to have it when you get home, just put it aside, have it for dinner tonight and join us for lunch today. We would love to have you stay with us. We would love you to see this foretaste of what it means to be in the new heavens and the new earth as we share together great food But our lunch today, and even the dinners that Meredith's family have, they're only a foretaste of what the new creation will be like. This idea of feasting and eating in good company, just a taste of what the promised new creation will will look like. It's just a peek into what the future has in store for us. Today, as we read these words about what the new creation is like, I just want you to see a few more things about what we could expect. I want you to see the permanence of the new creation. I want you to see the physical nature of it. And I want you to see the peace that exists in the new creation. In terms of the permanence and the kind of physical nature of the new creation, can you see the similarities between this world and the next? Look at me at verses 21 to 23 of our Isaiah chapter 65, the chapter we're working through today. Can you see there Isaiah describing that houses will be built and vineyards planted and food eaten and labour done? See, God uses the physical things of this world to help us understand what the new creation will be like. And so we get this picture of the new creation, not as one of kind of ethereal or spirit-filled, the kind of place where you imagine just kind of clouds and mist wafting about. No, the new creation looks like a physical world. It's a place where we'll have homes, vineyards. And for a people who have been in exile, remember the uh, Israel in exile, can you see how much joy they'll get by building houses and actually living in them as opposed to being kicked out of them by the Assyrians or the Babylonians? How much joy they'll get in planting a vineyard and being able to enjoy its fruit. But for us today, I think what's important is that we realise that the new creation is a physical place. A real place, a place where God will put things right. 
And it's also a place of great peace and great security. It's very different to this world in that sense. Even in the animal kingdom, we see that kind of peace absent, don't we? When have you ever seen one of these signs? Simon's going to flash it up on the screen behind you. If you've been to the Northern Territory, you might have seen these at a picnic spot or at a kind of beach. Basically, they're saying, if you swim here, you are likely to get eaten by a croc. That's different to what we're to expect in the new creation, where the wolf and the lamb will feed together. Or as it says in chapter 11, an infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. You see, this is what the new creation is like. Similar to this world, theologians call that continuity, but there are also a whole host of differences about the new creation which almost make it incomparable to the old. And the new is so much better. We should yearn for it. We should be homesick for it. If you're not feeling that today, perhaps it's because you haven't looked closely enough what the new creation is going to be like. Maybe I've not done justice to it this morning. That's highly likely. But if you haven't seen the beauty and the delight of what's in store for those who put their hope and trust in God, please don't let my shortcomings this morning distract you from that beauty. Spend some time this afternoon reading some of those bits in Isaiah that point us, that show us what the new creation is like. You can read about it in chapter 11. You can read about it in chapter 25 and in chapter 55 and 65. I want you to see the great joy, the great delight of the new heavens and the new earth. But if you have been even just somewhat captured by Isaiah's vision of what he sees, the next question that we should be asking, isn't it, is whose home is this? You might be getting homesick for that home, but whose home is it and how can I ensure that that's my home? That I think is, is kind of answered in verses 8 to 16 of chapter 65. See, in these verses, there's a building sense of two groups of people, those who seek after God and those who don't. I want you to see two things here as we look at these verses. It's only by God's grace that anyone is able to call this new heaven and this new earth home. None of us deserve it. And yet for some, it will be our home. Who? Well, ultimately those who serve the ultimate servant, Jesus. They are the ones who are saved and yet even then it's still an act of grace. Well, Have a look at verse 8 with me. It begins this way. It says, as when juice is found in a cluster of grapes and people say don't destroy it, there's still blessing in it, so will I do them in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. When I was an engineer, I worked in the wine industry and I shared an office with a really good friend of mine who had, and you may not believe this, but it's true, he had a PhD in squeezing grapes. That's what his PhD was in, was in crushing grapes, squeezing the juice out of them. And here's the thing, he had often lament to me that no one really cared. Now, none of you care today, I get that. (laughs) But no one cared in the wine industry either. Winemakers, he would say, they don't really care. And the reason they don't care is that for winemakers, the very best juice that you can possibly get 
He's the juice that runs out of the grapes before it's been squeezed at all. Winemakers call it the, um, uh, what do they call it, the, the first run, the free run. It's the very best juice. It's not contaminated at all by the astringent taste of the seeds or the skins of the grape. You might say it's the blessed bit, the bit that's saved. And in the same way, we see here God using that kind of image to describe a chosen portion of people, a remnant of people, a people who seek after him. And yet, can you see here that their salvation still relies on God's grace? We're all in the wine press together, so to speak. We're all facing judgment. And yet, some are saved. And just just in case you're wondering, does it make any difference? Well, let me read from verse 13 and note the comparison between God's servants and those who are not. This is what it says. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. Pretty big contrast, isn't it? It doesn't get much clearer than the contrast we see here. The coming or the going to God's home is a great day of celebration, a great day of salvation, but it's also a day of judgment. What determines if that's your home or not? Well, ultimately it rests in the grace of Jesus. Have you turned to him? Have you acknowledged Jesus as the servant of excellence we read about last week? Because that's what makes all the difference, isn't it? That's what this hinges on. It makes no difference if we're Jewish or Australian, if we're religious or not, if we vote for Liberal or Labour. What matters is, are you seeking after Jesus? Here's what Barry Webb says in his commentary. He wrote a great commentary on the book of Isaiah. He says, The demarcation line between those who are in and those who are out is not ethic or political, but personal and confessional. The door to the kingdom has been thrown open to all and sundry. But the sad fact is that many steadfastly refuse to go in. How do you know if the new heavens and the new earth are your future home? Well, here's the answer. Are you following Jesus in? Is he the one you seek? Is he the one you trust? Do you acknowledge him as the suffering servant, as your substitute? Are you walking with him? Because if you are, let me remind you of the Apostle Paul's words. He says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That you've been saved through a gracious act of God. And so it's your home that Isaiah is speaking of, your future. If that's you today, if you know what your inheritance is, if you know what is in store for you in the new heavens and the new earth, let me ask you, how is that shaping the way that you live your life today? Because surely if we know where we're going and if we know what that place is like, it'll start to shape how we live in this world today. 
Are you shaped by that vision? The message of this chapter is that our world is broken, but one day it will be replaced by a world made perfect. In the meantime, part of what it means to serve Jesus must include, I think, living with one eye looking to where we're going. And so hopefully that means that we speak with great joy and expectation about what that home is like. And hopefully it also overflows into us living out values that are appropriate for that new age. We should be agents of justice, shouldn't we? Agents of mercy, a voice for the weak. We should be helpers of people, friends with people. We should be a light to those who don't yet know Jesus, an example that they would notice. Over the last six weeks as we've been working our way through the book of Isaiah, I hope you've come to appreciate some of the themes that we see in this book. We've only just scratched its surface in years to come. We may well come back to this book. But I want to remind you just a few of the things that we've seen. I hope you've seen the holiness of God in this book. I hope you've seen the power and the majesty of God in this book of Isaiah. I hope you remember and have uh, reflected on what it means to trust God, that God is trustworthy. I hope those stories of King Hezekiah have given you confidence to put your hope and trust in a God who saves. And I hope you're seeing today with great clarity that God will one day bring us home to his kingdom. It's a place that none of us deserve to go. We'll find ourselves there only by the grace of God. Grace that we see in the suffering servant who offered himself as our substitute. It's my prayer that the book of Isaiah will make you homesick for that place, that you'll yearn for it, that you'll be willing to pray that our Father, who art in heaven, your kingdom come because we have a great place to go to and we should ask God to bring us there. Let me pray for us. Father God, we've seen from this book that you are a holy, holy, holy God. We've seen you act with great mercy and graciousness, sending our servant to be our substitute. We've seen that you have a plan and a purpose for this world. We've seen the trust of Hezekiah And today we ask that you would help us to trust in you as we wait for your kingdom to come. And Father, as we wait, we ask that you will prepare us and help us to live as those with an eye to this new place, that we'd be shaped by the joy of what lies ahead. Amen. So I have one question from last week, and it was to do with the suffering servant. And it was kind of asking, like, Who is the suffering servant in terms of who do the Jews think of the suffering servant today? Now, I'm not an expert by any means in this area. I can't really speak on behalf of who they think it might be. But here's a a, a few ideas. Firstly, some say that they are still waiting for a Messiah to come, a Messiah who is the suffering servant, but they don't see that Messiah as Jesus. And secondly, they kind of see the servant in Isaiah 53 as still being Israel as a nation. And you might have to kind of think about how that works. Is Israel as a nation of the Jews being punished over time? And to some extent you could say, yeah, as a people group, 
they have in many ways. What I want us to reflect on today and just remember is that the New Testament makes it very clear who the suffering servant is. We read in Acts last week in chapter 8 about Philip who clearly showed the Ethiopian eunuch that the suffering servant was Jesus, but it's picked up in a number of other places in the New Testament as well. And also just remember that when Isaiah was given his prophecy early on, this is what um, was told would happen with his ministry. Uh, basically, he was said, God said, make the hearts of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes, otherwise they might see with their ears, see with their eyes, sorry, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. I want to encourage you not to have a calloused heart this morning, to see Jesus as the suffering servant, because that's what the New Testament presents him as.